Hello and welcome to more, which stands for Midday Obviously Reads Everything. So, this is the podcast where I try my very best to finish The Hunger Games. As a self-proclaimed bookworm, it's kind of my duty. So join me and all of my guests as we try to read through the whole series. So sit back and relax as I do my best, my very, very, very best to read all of it. I hope I like it and I hope you like it too. So, let's begin. Hello and welcome to another episode of More. This is going to be a special episode tonight because we are doing a one hour podcast. Um, yeah. So we're going to be reading The Hunger Games for an hour, which is a pretty long time. Mostly because I'm really excited to finish the book. And also because we're getting really close. Like we're almost at like the 100 page mark. So it's getting pretty intense. I'm joined here with my hot chocolate. <laughs> There's no guest today. It's just me and my little hot chocolate and my microphone. So where we left off was uh, Katniss found Peeta and they were finally able to reunite. But now really, uh, Katniss realized that Peeta is actually a lot more injured than he first let on, which is not great. So we're going to go ahead and start from page 330 in the big print edition. I think this is chapter 19. Not too sure. No, it's just chapter 19. So we're going to start from there and we're going to keep on going. So let us continue. I crouch down beside him. No matter what happens, I tell myself, don't stop until he's in the water. On three, I say, one, two, three. I can only manage one full roll before I have to stop because of the horrible sounds he's making. Now he's on the edge of the string. Maybe this is better anyway. Okay, change of plans. I'm not going to be putting you all the way in, I tell him. Besides, if I get him in, who knows if I'll ever be able to get him out. No more rolling, he asks. That's all done. Let's get you cleaned up now. Keep an eye out on the woods for me, okay? I say, it's hard to know where to start. He's still caked with mud and matted leaves. I can't even see his clothes. If he's wearing clothes, the thought makes me hesitate a moment. Then I plunge in. Naked bodies are no big deal in the arena, right? I've got two water bottles and Rue's water skin. I prop them against the rocks in the stream so the two are always filling while I pour the third over Peter's body. It takes a while, but I finally get rid of enough mud to find his clothes. Gently unzip his jacket, unbutton his shirt, and ease them off him. His undershirt is so plastered into his wound, I have to cut it away with my knife and drench him again to work it loose. His chest is badly bruised with long burns across his uh, chest and four tracker jackers things. But if you count the one under his ear... But I feel a bit better. This is much. This is much I can fix. So I have to take care of his upper body first to alleviate some pain before I tackle whatever damage Cat told you to his leg. Since treating his wounds seemed pointless when he's lying on what become a mud puddle, I begin to prop him up against the boulder. <clears throat> he sits there uncomplaining while I wash away all the traces of dirt from his hair and skin. His flesh is so very pale in the sunlight, and he no longer looks strong and stocky. I have to dig up the stingers out of his tracker jacker lumps, which causes him to whine, but the minute I apply the leaves, he sighs in relief. While he dries in the sun, I wash his filthy shirt and jacket and spread them over boulders. Then I apply the burn cream to his chest. This is where I notice how hot his skin is becoming. The layer of mud and the bottles of water disguise the fact that he's burning with a fever. I dig through my first AK I got from the boy from District 1 and find pills that reduce your temperature. My mother actually breaks down and buys these on occasions when her home remedies fail. Swallow these, I tell him, and he obediently takes the medicine. He must be hungry. Not really. It's funny. I haven't been hungry for days, says Peter. In fact, when I offer him gruesome, he wrinkles his nose at it and turns away. That's when I know, that's when I know how sick he is. 
Peter, we need to get some food in you, I insist. It'll just come right back up, he says. Best I can do is get him to eat a few bits of dried apple. Thanks, I'm much better. Really, can I sleep now, Katniss? He asks. Soon, I promise. Can you look at your leg first? Trying to be gentle as I can, I remove his boots and his socks and very slowly inches his pants off. I can see the tear Kato's sword made in the fabric over his thigh, but in no way prepares for me. Uh, for me, uh, no. <laughs> in no way prepares me for what lies underneath the deep, inflamed gashing gash oozing both blood and pus. Ew. Aw, poor guy. I wonder how long he's been like that. If it's been a couple days, it's got to be at least three or four days since. Oh, three or four. I guess he's just been drinking the stream water, which I hope is fine, but I'm not too sure, honestly. Um, but anyway, let us continue. Um, I guess, uh, but there's no way preparing for what lies underneath, uh, the swelling of the leg, and worst of all, the smell of festering flesh. I want to run away, disappear into the woods like I did the day that brought the burn victims to our house, go and hunt one other primitive to what I have neither the skill nor the courage to face. But there's no one here but me. Try to capture the common demeanor my mother assumes when handling particularly bad cases. Pretty awful, huh? Says Peter. He's watching me closely. So so. I sure like it's no big deal. What? <laughs> For context, I was trying to, trying to lift my hand and accidentally I whacked the whole book. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, that's so funny. Anyway, I found my place again. We are good. <laughs> you should see some of the people they bring from my mother from the mines. I refrain from saying how I usually clear out of the house whenever she's treating anything worse than a cold. Come to think of it, I don't even like to be around coughing. First thing is to clean it well. I left on Peta's undershorts because they're not in bad shape. I don't want to pull them over the swollen thigh and all. And alright, maybe the idea of him being naked makes me uncomfortable. That's another thing my mother and Prim. Nakedness has no effect on them, gives them no cause for embarrassment. Ironically, at this point in the game, my little sister would be of far more use to PETA than I am. I scoop my square of plastic under him so I can wash down the rest of him. With each bottle I pour over him, the worse the wound looks. The rest of his lower body has fared pretty well. Just one tracker jacker sting and a few small burns that I treat quickly with a gash for his leg. What on earth can I do for that? Why don't we give it some air and then I trail off. And then you'll patch it up, says Peter. He looks almost sorry for me as if he knows how lost I am. That's right, I say. In the meantime, you eat these. I pull the few dried pear halves in his hand and go back to the stream to wash the rest of his clothes. When they're flattened and drying, I examine the content of the first aid kit. It's pretty basic stuff. Bandages, fever pills, medicine to calm stomach, doesn't of the caliber I'll need to treat Peter. We're going to have to experiment some, I admit. Another tracker jacker leaves draw infection. I start with those, but the minutes of pressing the handful of chewed up green stuff on the wound, pus begins running down the side of his legs. I tell myself it's a good thing, and bite the inside of my cheek hard because my, break my breakfast is threatening to make an appearance. Katniss, Peter says, I meet his eye, knowing his face must be some shade of green. He mouths the words, how about a kiss? I burst out laughing because of the whole situation so revolting, I can't stand it. Something wrong? He asks a little too innocently. I'm... I'm no good at this. I'm not my mother. I have no idea what I'm doing, and I hate this. I say, ugh. Long well, just let out a groan. I rinse away the first round of leaves and apply a second. Ugh. How do you hunt? He's asked. Trust me, killing things is much easier than this. I say. Although, for all I know, I am killing you. Can you speed it up a little? He asks. No. Shut up and eat your pears. I say. After three applications of what seems like a bucket of pus, the wound does look better. Now the swelling has gone down. I can see a deep cacho sword cut right down to the bone. What next, Doctor Aberdeen? Maybe I'll put some of the burn ointment on it. I think it helps with infection anyway. And wrap it up, I say. I do, and the whole thing seems a lot more manageable, covered in clean white cloth. Although against the sterile bandage, the hem of his undershorts looks filthy and teeming with contact. Con 
Tugation. I pull out Rude's backpack. Here, cover yourself with this, and I'll wash your shorts. Oh, I don't even care if you see me, says Peta. You're just like the rest of my family, I say. I care, all right? I turn my back and look at the stream until the other shorts splash into the current. Must be feeling a bit better if he could throw. You know, you're kind of a squeamish for such a lethal person, says Peta, as I beat the shorts clean between two rocks. I wish I'd let you, I wish I'd let you give Hamish a shower after all. Wrinkle my nose at the memory. What, what's, what's he sent you so far? Not a thing, says Peta. And there's a pause and it hits him. Why? Did you get something? Bread medicine, I say almost sheepishly. Oh, and some bread. I always knew you were his favorite, says Peta. Please, he can't stand being in the same room with me, I say. Because you're just a lake, mutters Peta. I ignore it, though it's, though because this really isn't the time for me to be insulting Hamish, which is my first impulse. I let Peta doze off while his clothes dry out, but late afternoon I don't dare wait any longer. I gently shake his shoulder. Peta, we've got to go now. Go? He seems confused. Go where? Away from here. Downstream, maybe. Somewhere we can hide you until you're stronger, I say. I help him dress, leaving his bare feet so we can walk to the water and pull him upright. His face drains of color the moment he puts any weight on his leg. Come on, you can do this. But he can't. Not for long, anyway. We make it about 50 yards downstream with his propped leg by my shoulder. And I can tell he's going to black out. I sit him on the bank, push his head between his knees, and pat his back awkwardly to survey the area. Of course, I'd love to get him up into a tree, but that's not going to happen. It could be worse, though. The only rocks form small cave-like structures. I set my sights on one about 20 yards from the stream. When Pete is able to stand, I half-guide, half-carry him up to the cave. Really, I'd like to look around for a better place, but this one will have to do, because my ally is shot. Paper white, panting, and even though it's only cooling off, he's shivering. I cover the floor of the cave with a layer of pine needles, unroll my sleeping bag, and tuck him into it. I get a couple of pills and water into him when he's not noticing, but he refuses to eat even the fruit. Then he just lies there, his eyes trained on my face as I build a sort of bind out of leaves and conceal the mouth of the cave. The result is unsatisfactory. An animal might not question it, but a human would see hands and manufacture quickly enough. I tear down it in frustration. Katniss, he says. I go over to him and brush the hair back from his eyes. Thanks for finding me. He would have found me if I could. If you could, I say, his forehead burning up, like the medicine of no having no effect. Suddenly, out of nowhere, I'm scared he's gonna die. Yes, look, if I don't make it back, he begins. Don't talk like that. I didn't drain all the all that puss for nothing, I say. I know, but just in case I don't, he tries to continue. No, Peter, I don't even want to discuss this. I say, placing my fingers on his lips to quiet him. But I, he insists, possibly I lean forward and kiss him, stopping his words. This is probably overdue anyway since he's right. We're supposed to be madly in love. First time I've ever kissed a boy, which should make some sort of impression, I guess. But all I can register is how unnaturally hot his lips are from the fever. I break away and pull on the edge of a sleeping bag around him. You're not going to die. I forbid it. All right? All right, he whispers. I step out into the cool evening air just as the parachute floats down from the sky. My fingers quickly undo the tie, hoping for some real medicine to treat Peta's um, leg. So I find a pot of hot broth. Hamish couldn't be sending me a clear message. One kiss equals one pot of hot broth. You can al almost hear him snarl. You're supposed to be in love, sweetheart. The boy's done. Give me something I can work with here. And he's right. When I keep Peter alive, I've got to give the audience something more they care about. Star-crossed lovers desperate to get home together, two hearts beating as one. Romance. I haven't been in love. This is going to be a real trick. Trick! <laughs> I think of my parents, the way my father's never failed to bring her gifts from the woods. My mother's face would light up at the sound of his boots at the door. The way she almost stopped living when he died. Peter, I say, trying to be... For, trying for the skeptical tone my mother used only for my father. He dozed off again, but I kiss him awake, which seems to startle him. Then he smiles as if he's happy to lie there gazing at me forever. He's so great at this stuff. Peta, look what Hamish has sent you. Getting the broth in Peta takes an hour of coxing, begging, threatening, and yes, kissing. Finally, sip by sip, he empties the pot. 
I let him drift off to sleep and then tend to my own needs, wolfing down a supper of grew slinger roots while I watched the daily report in the sky. No new casualties. Still, Pete and I have given the audience uh, a fairly interesting day. Hopefully the game maker- Oh, also, totally forgot. We were on chapter 20. Whoop, whoop. And we are almost at the 100 page mark because I believe- Okay, we're not almost there. Um- more like 40 pages from the But hey, you know what? That doesn't matter. We're getting closer. It's only been like 10 minutes. So go us. Yeah. Anyway. Um, I've given the audience a fairly interesting day. Hopefully the game makers will allow us a peaceful night. I'm going to look around for a good tree to nest in before I realize that's over. At least for a while. I can't very well leave Peta unguarded on the ground. I left the scene of his last hiding place on the bank of the stream untouched. How could I conceal it? And we're a scat 50 yards downstream. I put on my glasses, place my weapons in readiness, and settle down to keep watch. Temperature drops rapidly, rapidly and soon I'm chilled to the bone. Eventually, I give in and slide into the sleeping bag with Peta. He's toasty warm, snuggled down, grateful until I realize it's more than warm. It's overly hot because the bag goes reflecting back his fever. I check his forehead and find it burning and dry. I don't know what to do. Leave him in the bag and hope the excess heat breaks the fever. Take him out and hope the night air cools him off. And, uh... Just getting a dampened strip of band-aid and placing it on his forehead. It seems weak, but I'm afraid to do anything too drastic. I spend the night half sitting, half lying next to Peter, pushing the bandage and try not to dwell on the fact that, that by teaming up with him, I made myself far more vulnerable than I was when I was alone. Tethered to the ground on guard with a very sick person to take care of, but I knew he was injured and I still came after him. I'm just going to have to trust that whatever instinct sent me to find him was a good one. When the sky turns rosy, I notice the sheen of sweat on Peter's lips and discover the fever has broken. He's not back to normal, but it's come down a few degrees. Last night when I was gathering vines, I came upon a bush of rose berries. Chewed off the fruit and mashed up in the broth pot with cold water. Peter struggles to get up when I reach the cave. I woke up and you were gone, he says, I was worried about you. I have to laugh, laugh as I ease him back down. You were worried about me? Have you taken a look at yourself lately? I thought Kato and Clove might have found you. They like to hunt at night, he says, serious. Clove, which one is that? I asked. The girl from District 2. She's still alive, right? Yes, there's just them, and us, and Thrush, and Foxface, I say. And what I nicknamed... Oh, that's when they, that's what I nicknamed the girl from District 5. How do you feel? Better than yesterday. This is an enormous improvement over the mud, he says. Clean clothes, medicine, a sleeping bag, and you? Oh, Peta, lover boy. Look at you go, spitting all your words. Oh, right, the whole romance thing. I really touch his, touch his cheek, and he catches my hand and presses it against his lips. Remember my father doing this very thing to my mother, and I wonder where Peta picked it up. Show you not from his father and the witch. No more kisses for you until you've eaten, I say. We get him propped up against the wall, and he obediently swallows a spoonful of the berry which I feed him. He refuses the gruesome again, though. He didn't sleep, says Peter. I'm alright, I say, but the truth is, I'm exhausted. Sleep now. I'll keep watch. I'll wake you if anything happens, he says. I hesitate. Katniss, you can't stay up forever. He's got a point there. I have to sleep eventually. And probably better to do it now when he seems relatively alert and when we have daylight on our side. Alright, I say. But just for a few hours, then you wake me. See on the sleeping bag now. I smooth it out on the cave floor, lie down, one hand on my loaded bow in case I have to shoot at a moment's notice. Peter sits beside me, leaning against the wall, his bad legs stretched out before him, his eyes turned on the world outside. Go to sleep, he says softly. His hand brushes the loose strands of my hair on my forehead. Unlike the stage kiss and the careless caresses so far, this gesture seems natural and comforting. I don't want him to stop, and he doesn't. He's still stroking my hair when I fall asleep. 
Too long. I slept too long. I know from the moment I opened my eyes or into the afternoon. Pete is right beside me, his position unchanged. I sit up feeling somehow defensive but better rested than I have been in days. Peter, supposed to wake me for after a few hours, I say. For what? Nothing is going on here, he says. Besides, I like watching you sleep. You don't scowl. Improves your looks a lot. <laughs> this, of course, brings on a scowl that makes him grim. That's when I notice how dry his lips are. I test his sheet. Hot as a coal stove. He's claimed he's been drinking, but the containers still feel full to me. Give him more fever pills and stand over him while he drinks. The first one, then a second one, second quart of water. Then I tend to his minor wounds and the burns and the stings, which are slowly improving. I steal myself and run wrap the leg. My heart drops into my stomach. It's worse, much worse. There is no more puss in the evidence, but the swelling has increased and the tight, shiny skin is inflamed. Then I see a red streak starting to crawl up his leg. Blood poisoning. Unchecked, it'll kill him for sure. My chewed up leaves and ointment won't make a dent in it. Only some strong anti infection drugs from the Capitol. Can't imagine the cost of having such potent medicine. Hamish pulled every donation from every sponsor would have been enough. I doubt it. Gifts go up in prices the longer the games continue. What buys a full meal on day one buys a cracker on the day twelve. That's kind of medicine Peter needs would have to be premium would have improved at the beginning. Well, there's more swelling, but the puss is gone, I say in an unsteady voice. I know what blood poisoning is, Katniss, says Peter. Even my mother isn't a healer. You're just going to have to outlast the others, Peter. They'll cure it back at the Capitol when we win. I say, yeah, that's a good plan, he says, but I feel it's mostly for my benefit. You have to eat. Keep your strength up. I'm going to I'm gonna make you soup, I say. Don't light a fire, he says. It's not worth it. We'll see, I say. I take my pot. I say, I take the pot down to the stream. I'm struck by how brutally hot it is. I swear the game makers are progressively ra ratcheting up the temperature in the daytime and sending it plummeting at night. The heat of the sun-baked stones by the steam stream gives me an idea, though. Maybe I won't need to light a fire. Settled down by a big flat rock halfway between the stream and the cave. After purifying half a pot of water, I place it in the sun direct sunlight and add several egg-sized hot stones to the water. I'm the first to admit it. I'm not much of a cook, but since soup mainly involves tossing everything into a pot and waiting it's one of my better dishes. I mince grusling until it's practically mush and mashed from roost roots. Fortunately, they've both been roasted already, so they also need to be heated up. Already, between the sunlight and the rocks and the water's warmth, I put in the meat and the roots and swap it fresh rocks and go find something to spice it up a little bit. Before long, I discover a tuft of chives growing at the base of some rocks. Perfect. I'll chop them very fast. <laughs> bless you. Oh, bless me. I guess. Um, I chop them very fine and then add them to the pot which switch and switches out the rock again. Put on the lid and let the whole thing stew. I've seen very few signs of game around, but I don't feel comfortable leaving Peter alone while I hunt, so I bring myself half a dozen snares and I hope I get lucky. I wonder about the other two because how they're managing now that their main source of food has been blown up. At least three of them, Cato, Club, and Foxface, have been relying on it. Probably not Thrush, though. I got a feeling he must have—he must share some of Rue's knowledge on how to feed yourself from the earth. Are they fighting each other? Lucky for us, maybe one of them has located us and is just waiting for the right moment to attack. This idea sends me back to the cave. <clears throat> Peter stretched uh, stretched out to the top of the sleeping bay in the shade of the rocks. Although he brightened a bit when I come in, it's clear he feels miserable. I put on I put cool cool cloths on his head, but they warm up almost as soon as they touch his skin. Do you want anything? I ask. No, he says. Thank you. Wait. Yes. Tell me a story. A story about what? I say. I'm not much of a storyteller. Kind of like singing. But once in a while, Prim wheedles one out of me. Something happy. Tell me about the happiest day you can remember. Says Peter. Something between a sigh and a huff of exasperation leaves my mouth. A happy story. This will require a lot more effort than the soup. 
Hack my brains for a good memory. Most of them involve Gale and me out hunting. Somehow I don't think these will play well with PETA or the audience. That leaves Prim. Did I ever tell you how I got Prim's goat? I asked PETA. Uh, I asked. PETA shakes his head and looks at me expectedly. So I begin, but carefully, because my words are going out over Panam. And while people have no doubt about to put two and two together that I hunt illegally, I don't want to hear Gale or Greasy say or the other butchers or even the peacekeepers back home who are my customers by publicly announcing they're breaking the law. Here's the real story of how I got the money for Prim's Goat Lady. Uh, Prim's Goat Lady. It was a Friday evening, the day before Prim's 10th birthday uh, birthday in late May. As soon as school ended, Gail and I hit the woods because I wanted to get enough to trade for a present for Prim. Maybe some new cloth for a dress or a hairbrush. Our snares had done well enough and the woods were flushed with greens, but this was really no more than our average Friday night haul. I was disappointed as we headed back, even though Gail said we'd be sure to do better tomorrow. We were resting alone by a stream when we saw him. A young buck, probably a yearling by his size. His antlers were just growing in, still small and coated in velvet. Poised to run, but unsure of us, unfamiliar with humans. Beautiful. Less, than, less beautiful, perhaps, when the two arrows caught him, one in the neck and the other in the chest. Gail and I had shot at the same time. The buck tried to run, but stumbled, and Gail's knife slid his throat before he knew what happened. Momentarily, I felt a pang at killing something so fresh and innocent, and my stomach rumbled at the thought of all that fresh and innocent meat. A deer, Gillen and I only brought down in three. The first one, a doe, that had injured her leg somehow, almost didn't count, but we knew from that experience not to go dragging the carcass into the hob. It had caused chaos of people bidding on parts and actually trying to hack off pieces themselves. Greasy had intervened and sent us with our deer to the butcher, but not before it had been badly damaged, hunks of meat taken, and the hide riddled with holes. Though everyone paid up fairly, it had been lower it had lowered the value of the kill. This time we waited until dark fell and slipped under a hole in the fence close to the butchers. Even though we weren't known we were no hunters, it wouldn't have been good to go carrying a one fifty pound deer through the streets of District twelve in daylight like we were rub rubbing it in the officials' faces. The butcher, a short clunky woman named Ruba Ooh, Ruba. So it's like R O O B. So it'd be like Raba, maybe? Maybe it's like Raba. Ruba? I'm gonna go with Ruba. Came to the back door when we knocked. You don't haggle with Ruba. She gives you one price, which you can take or leave, but it's a fair price. We took her offer on the deer and she threw out a couple of ven venison? venison steaks. I don't know. We could pick up after the butchering. Even with the money divided in two, neither Gail nor I had held so much at one time in our lives. We decided to keep it a secret and surprise our families with the meat and money at the end of the next day. This is where I really got the money for the goat. I tell Peter I sold the old silver lock of my mother's. That can't hurt anyone. And I picked up the story in the late afternoon of Prim's birthday. Gail and I went to the market on the square so I could go buy a dress material. I was running my fingers over a length of thick blue cotton. Something caught my eye. There's an old man who keeps a small herd of goats on the other side of the seam. I don't know his real name. Everyone just calls him the goat man. He, his joints are swollen and twisted in painful angles, and he's got a hacking cough that proves he spent years in the mines. But he's lucky. Somewhere along the line... Uh, he saved up enough for these ghosts. Now has something to do with, with his old age besides slowly starved to death. He's filthy and impatient, but the goats are clean and their milk is rich, if you can afford it. One of the goats, a white one with a black patch with black patches, was lying down in a cart. It was easy to see why. Something, probably a dog, had mauled her shoulder and affection had set in. It was bad. The goatman had to hold her up to milk her, but I thought I knew someone who could fix it. Gilly whispered, I want that goat for Prim. 
Owning a nanny goat can change your life in District 12. The animals can live off almost anything. The meadow is a perfect feeding spot that gives you four quarts of milk a day to drink, to make it into cheese, to sell. It's not even against the law. She's hurt pretty bad, says Gail. We better take a closer look. He went over and brought a cup of milk to share. Sit over the goat is idly curious. Let it be, says the man. We're just looking, says Gail. Well, look fast. She goes to the butcher soon. Hardly anyone will buy her milk, and they only pay half price, says the man. What's the butcher giving for her? I asked. The man shrugged. Hang around, and you'll s- and I'll see. I turned and saw Ruba coming across the square towards us. Lucky thing you showed up, says the goat man when she arrived. Gail got her eye on your goat. Nah, she's spoken for, says carelessly. Ruba looks up at me and down, and then she finds the goat. She's not. Look at the shoulder. Bet you half the carcass will be rotten, even for sausage. What, says the goat man? We had a deal. We had a deal on an animal with a few teeth marked, not that thing. Sell her to the girl. She's stupid enough to take her, says Ruba, and she marks it off. I caught her wink. The goat man was mad, but he still wanted to go off his hands. It took us half an hour to agree on the price. Quite a crowd had gathered by the time they hand out the opinions. It had been an excellent deal if the ghost had lived. I'd be robbed if she died. People took sides in the argument, but I took the goat. Gail offered to carry her. I think he wanted to see the look on Prim's face as much as I did. In a moment of complete giddiness, I bought a pink ribbon and tied it around her neck and hurried back to my house. You should have seen Prim's reaction when we walked into and walked in with that goat. Remember, this is the girl who wept to save that awful old cat, Buttercup. She was so excited, she started crying and laughing all at once. My mother was less sure, seeing the injury, but the pair of them went to work on it, grinding up hers, coxing bruises down the animal's throat. I sound just like you, says Peta. I had almost forgotten he was there. Oh no, Peta. They work magic. That thing couldn't have, would have died if I tried. Whoa, that thing couldn't have died if it tried, says I, I say. Then I bite my tongue and realizing what must sound to Peta, who was dying in my incompetent hands. Don't worry, I'm not trying, he says. Finish the story. Well, that's it. Only I remember that night, Prim insisted on sleeping with Lady on a blanket next to the fire. Just before they drifted off, the goat licked her cheek as, as like it was giving her a goodnight kiss or something, I say. It was already mad about her. Was it still wearing the pink ribbon, he says. I think so, I ask. Why? I'm just trying to get a picture, he says thoughtfully. I can see why that day made you happy. Well, I knew that goat would be a little gold mine, I say. Yes, of course, I was referring to that. Not the lasting joy you gave your sister you love so much. You took her place in the reaping, says Peter dryly. The goat has paid for itself several times over, I say in a superior tone. Well, it wouldn't dare do anything else after you saved this life, says Peter. I intend to do the same thing. Really? What did it, What did you cost me again, I ask? A lot of trouble. Don't worry, he'll get it back, he says. You're not making sense, I say. I test his forehead. The fever is going nowhere but up. You're a little cooler, though. Side of the tribe, it startles me. On my feet and at the mouth of the cave, in a flash, not wanting to miss a syllable, a syllable. It's my new friend, Claudius Templesmith, and I expected he's inviting us to a feast. Well, we're not that hungry, and I actually wave off his offer in a different one, he says. Now, hold on. Some of you may already be declining my invitation, but this is no ordinary feast. Each of you needs something desperately. I do need something desperately. Something to heal Peta's leg. Each of you will find something in a backpack marked with your district number at the corny corn at dawn. Think hard about refusing to show up. For some of you, this will be your last chance, says Claudius. Nothing else but his words hanging in the air. I jump at Peter grips my shoulder from behind. No, he says, you're not risking your life for me. Who says I was, I say. So you're not going, he says. Of course I'm not going. Give me some credit. Do you think I'm running straight into a free-for-all against Cato and Clove and Thresh? Don't be stupid, I say, helping him back to bed. I'll let them fight it out, and we'll see who's in the sky tomorrow night and work out a plan from there. You're such a bad liar, Katniss. I don't know how you survived this long. He begins making me. I knew that goat would be a good little gold mine. You're a little cooler, though.
Of course I'm not going. He shakes his head. Never again look hard. You'll lose your last coin, he says. Anger flushes my face. All right, I am going. You can't stop me. I can follow you, at least part way. I may not make it to the corny corn, but if I'm yelling your name, I bet someone can find me. And then I'll be dead for sure, he says. You won't get a hundred yards from here on that leg, I say. And I'll drag myself, says Peter. You go, and I'm going too. He's just stubborn enough and maybe just strong enough to do it. Come howling after me in the woods. Even if a tribute doesn't find him, something else might. He can't defend himself. I'd probably have to wall him up in the cave just to go myself. And who knows what the extortion will do to him. What am I supposed to do? Sit here and watch you die, I say? He must know that's not an option. That the audience would hate me. And frankly, I, I would hate myself too if I didn't even try. I won't die. I promise. If you promise not to go, he says, we're at something of a stalemate. I know we can't argue. I know I can't argue him out of this one, so I don't try. I pretend reluctantly to go along. Then you have to do what I say. Drink your water, wake me up when I tell you, and eat every last bite of your soup, no matter how disgusting it is, I snap at him. Agreed. Is it ready? Wait here, I say. The air, the cool air is gone. Ugh. <laughs> the air is gone cold, even though the sun's still up. I'm right about the game makers messing with the temperatures. I wonder if the thing someone needs desperately is a good blanket. The soup is still nice and warm in its iron pot, and actually doesn't taste too bad. Peter eats without complaint, even scraping out the pot to show his enthusiasm. He rambles on about how delicious it is, which should be encouraging if you don't know what fever does to people. He's like listening to Hamish before the alcohol soaked into him, soaked him into inco incoherency. I give him another dose of fever medicine before he goes off his head completely. As I go on the stream to wash up, all I can think about is that he's going to die if I don't get to that feast. I keep him going for a day or two, and the infection will reach his heart, or his brain, or his lungs, and he'll be gone. And I'll be here alone, again, waiting for others. I'm so lost in thought that I almost missed the parachute, even though it floats right by me. I spring after it, yanking it from the water, tearing off silver fabric to retrieve the vital. Hamish has done it. He's gotten the medicine. I don't know how he persuaded some gaggle of a romantic fool to sell their jewelry, and I can save Peta. It's a very tiny vital, though. It must be very strong to curse someone as ill as Peta. A ripple of doubt runs through me. I uncork the vital and take a deep sniff. My spirits fall at the sickly sweet scent. Just to be sure, I taste a drop and tip my tongue. There's no question about it. It's a sleep syrup. It's a common medicine in District 12. Cheap as medicine goes, but very addictive. Almost everyone had a dose of it at one time or another. They have some in a bottle at home. My mother gives it to hysterical patients to knock them out to stitch up a bad wound or quiet their minds or just to help someone in pain get through the night. It only takes a little. A vital this size could knock Peter out for a full day. But what good is that? So fears I'm about to throw Hamish's last offering to stream when it hits me. A full day? That's more than I need. I match up a handful of bears so the taste won't be as noticeable and add some mint bleeds for good measure. And then I head back to the cave. I brought you a treat. I found a new patch of berries a little further down the stream. He opens his mouth for the first bite without hesitation. He swallows and frowns slightly. Yes, uh, oopsie. <laughs> I skipped the line. They're very sweet, he says. Um, yes, they're sugar. <laughs> I don't know, that was a big pause. Anyway, yes, they're sugar berries. My mother makes jam from them. Haven't you ever had them before? I said, poking the next spoonful in his mouth. No, he says, almost buried, almost puzzled, but they taste familiar. Sugar berries? Well, you can't get them in the market much. They only grow wild, I say. Another mouthful goes down. Just one more to go. They're as sweet as syrup, he says, taking the last spoonful. Syrup. 
His eyes widened as he realized the truth. I clapped my hand over I clapped my hand over his mouth and nose, forcing him to swallow instead of spit. He tries to make sense of vomit the stuff up, but it's too late. It's already closed losing consciousness. Even as he fades away, I can see it in his eyes what I've done is unforgivable. I sit back on my heels and look at him with a mixture of sadness and satisfaction. A strain of berries stains his chin and I wipe it away. Who can't lie, Peter? I say, even though he can't hear me. Doesn't matter. Rest of Panam Cam. Okay, so now we're starting chapter 21 uh, on page 360. We're almost there. We're almost there. Almost reached the 100 page mark, which means that we're very, we're getting very, very, very close to the end of the book. Well, not very close. We're getting, we're getting closer. Closer. So. <clears throat> Let us continue. In the remaining hours before nightfall, I gather rocks and do my best to camouflage the opening of the cave. It's a slow and arduous process, but after a lot of sweating and shifting things around, I'm pretty pleased with my work. The cave now appears to be part of a larger pile of rocks, like so many in the vicinity. I can still crawl into PETA through a small opening, but it's undetectable from the outside. That's a good That's a good thing, because I, know I need to share that sleeping bag again tonight. Although, if I don't make it back for the from the feast, PETA will be hidden, but not entirely imprisoned. Although I doubt he can hang out much longer without medicine, by the end of the feast, District 12 isn't likely to have a victor. I make a meal out of the smaller, bonier fishes that inhabit the stream down there and fill up every water container that pure, I'm purified. And clean my weapons, I have nine arrows left in all. I debate leaving the knife with Peter so he'll have some protection while I'm gone, but there really isn't a point. He was right about camouflage being his final defense. I still have to use, I still use the knife. Who knows when I'll encounter. encounter. Here are some things I'm fairly certain of. There will at least be Cato, Clove, and Thrush will be on hand when the feast starts. I'm not sure about Foxface, since direct confrontation is her style or her forte. She's even smaller than I am and unarmed, and unless she's picked up some weapon recently. She'll probably be hanging around somewhere nearby, seeing what she can scavenge. The other three, I'm going to have my hands full. My ability to kill a distance is my greatest asset, but I know I'll have to go right into the thick of things to get that backpack, the one with the number 12 on it, that Claudius Templesmith mentioned. I walk the sky hoping for one less op op opponent at dawn, but no one appears to tonight. Tomorrow there'll be faces up there. Feasts always result in fatalities. I crawl into the cave, secure my glasses, and then curl up next to Peta. Luckily, I had the good long sleep today. I have to stay awake. I don't really think anyone will attack our cave tonight, but I can't risk missing in the dawn. So cold, so bitterly cold tonight, as if the game makers have sent an infusion of frozen air across the arena, which may be exactly what they've done. I have next to Peta in the bag, trying to absorb every bit of his fever heat. It's strange to be so physically close to someone who's so distant. Peta might as well be back in the Capitol, or at least in District 12, or on the moon right now. He'd be no harder to reach. I've never felt lonelier since the game began. Just except it'll be a bad night, I tell myself. I try not to, but I can't help thinking of my mother of Prim, wondering if they'll sleep a wink tonight at this late stage in the game with an important event like the feast. School will probably be cancelled. My family can either watch on the static-filled old clunker TV at home or join the crowds in the square to watch on the big, clear screens. They love privacy at home, but support in the square. People will give them kind words, a bit of food if they can spare. I wonder if the baker has sought them out, especially now that PETA and I are a team. 
I make goodness promise to keep my little sister's belly full. Spirits must be running high in District 12. We still really have anyone to root for at this point in the games. Surely people are excited about Peta and me, especially now that we're together. I close my eyes, I can imagine their shouts on the screen, urging us on. I see their faces, Greasy Say and Mage, and even the peacekeepers who buy my meat, cheering for us. And Gail, I know him. He won't be shouting and cheering, but he'll be watching every moment, every twist and turn, and willing me to come home. I wonder if he's hoping that Peta makes it as well. Gail's not my boyfriend, but it would, but he would be if I can open that door. Ooh, tea. He talked about us running away together. Was that just a practical calculation of our chances of survival away from the district, or something more? I wonder what he makes of all this kissing. Thought I cracked, I thought I threw a crack to the rocks. I watched the moon cross the sky. When I judged to be about three hours before dawn, I began final preparations. I'm careful to leave Peter with water and the medical kit right beside him. Nothing else will be much to use if I don't return, and even these will only prolong his life a short time. After some debate, I strip him of his jacket and zip it on over my own. He doesn't need it, not for the sleeping bag with his fever, and during the day, I'm not here to remove it. He'll be toasting in it. My hands are stiff from cold, so I take Ruth's spare pair of socks, cut holes for my fingers and thumbs, and put them on. It helps anyway. I fill up a small pack for some food and water uh, and bandages. Tuck the knife in my belt and get my bow and arrows. I'm about to leave when I remember the importance of sustaining the star-crossed lover's routine, and I lean over and give Peta a long, lingering kiss. I imagine a teary sigh emanating from the capital, pretend to brush away a tear from my own. Then I squeeze the opening in the rocks out into the light. My breath makes a small night cloud as it hits the air. It's cold as November night at home. Now, where I've slipped into the woods, lantern in my hand, I join Gayla at some prearranged place where we'll sit bundled together, sipping herb tea from metal flasks wrapped in a quilting, hoping a game will pass our way in the morning. Oh, Gail, I think if only I had, if only you had my back now. I move as fast as I dare. The glasses are quite remarkable, but still sorely miss having the use of my left ear. I don't know what the explosion did, but it damaged something deep and irreplaceable. Never mind. If I get home, I'll be so stinking rich I'll be able to pay someone to do my hearing. The woods always look different at night. Even with the glasses, everything has an unfamiliar slant to it. That the daytime trees and flowers and stones have gone to bed and sent a slightly more ominous version of themselves to take their place. I don't try anything tricky like tracking taking a new route. I make my way back to the stream and follow the same path back to Rue's hiding place near the lake. Along the way, I see that no signs of other tributes, not a puff of breath, not a quiver of a branch, either on the first arrive or the other positions themselves last night. There's still more than an hour or two when I wriggle into the underbrush and wait for the blood to begin to flow. <clears throat> I chew a few mint leaves my and my stomach isn't up for more. Thank goodness I have Peter's jacket as well as my own. If not, I'd be forced to move around to stay warm. The sky turns a misty morning gray and still there's no sign of the other tributes. Not surprising, really. Everyone has distinguished themselves either by strength or by deadliness or by cunning. Do they suppose, I wonder, that I have Peta with me? I doubt Foxface and Thrush even know that he was wounded. All the better if they think he's covering me when I go for the backpack. But where is it? The arena has lightened enough for me to remove my glasses. I can hear the morning birds singing. Is it at time? For a second, I'm panicked that I'm in the wrong location. But no, I'm certain I remember Claudius Templesmith specifically saying the cornicorn. There it is. There I am. So where's my feast? Just as the first ray of sun glints in the gold cornicorn, the disturbance on the plain, the ground before the mouth of the horn splits into two, and a round table with a uh, snowy white cloth r rises in the arena. On the table sits four backpacks with two large black letters, numbers, not letters. Oh my goodness. Two large black numbers on a uh, two and eleven, a medium sized one with number five, and a tiny orange one. I really wish I could carry it around my waist. I really could carry it around my waist. That must be marked around 12. With a 12. 
<laughs> I'm literally making up words right now, and it's crazy. Like, this whole thing, it literally, it's not that difficult, but I'm just making up words. I'm just joining them together in different ways, and it's just not that. So, if you think I'm messing up my words, I am, and I apologize. <laughs> We're going to keep on going. We have, what? I don't know how many chapters are even left in this book. I think there's like, uh, let me check quickly. Chapter, 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 ooh, hold on. Chapter, 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 ooh, um, mm-hmm. chapter, chapter, chapter. I'm going to assume there's like 25 chapters. And so I'm trying to see where the last chapter, oh, there's 27. There's 27 chapters. Okay, I was close. I hooked my little song that I did too. <laughs> but yeah. Um, and a small orange backpack. Really, I could carry it around my waist that had been marked with a 12. The table has just clicked in place when a, fi- a figure darts out of the corny corn, snags the green backpack, and speeds off. Foxface, leave it to her to come up with such a clever and risky idea. The rest of us are still poised on the plane, sizing up the situation, and she's got hers. She's got us trapped too, because no one wants to chase her down, not while her own pack sits so vulnerable at the table. Foxface must have purposely left the other packs alone, knowing that to steal one without her number would definitely bring on a pursuer. That should have been my strategy. By the time I've worked through the emotions of surprise, admiration, anger, jealousy, and frustration, watching the reddish mane of hair disappear onto the trees well out of the shooting range. Huh. I'm always dreading the others, but Manny Foxface is a real opponent here. She cost me time, too, because now it's clear I must get to the table next. Anyone who beats me will easily scoop my pack and be gone. Without hesitation, I sprint for the table. Katniss, be careful. And I can sense the emer- emercy- emergency of danger before I see, see it. Fortunately, the first the first knife comes whizzing in on my right side, so I can hear it, and I'm able to deflect it with my bow. I turn, drawing it back to the bowstring, and send it an arrow straight at Clove's heart. She turns just enough to avoid a fatal hit, but the uh, point punctures her upper left arm. Unfortunately, she throws with her right, but it's enough to slow her down a few moments, having to pull an arrow from her skin. Take the severity of the wound. I keep moving, positioning the next arrow automatically, as if as only someone who has hunted for years can do. I'm at the table now, my fingers closing over the tiny orange backpack. My hand slips between the strap and I yank it up on my arm. It's really too small to fit on any other part of my anatomy. And I'm turning to fire again when the second knife catches me in the forehead. Oh my gosh. Forehead? It slices above my right eyebrow, opening a gash that sends a gush down my face, blinding my eye, filling my mouth with sharp, metallic taste of my own blood. Dagger back grip is still nice on my right, ready arrow in the general direction of my assailant. I know I leave my hands, I will miss. And then Clove slammed into me, knocking me flat on my back, pinning me, pinning my shoulder to the ground with her knees. I th- This is it, I think. Help for prim's sake, it'll be fast. But Clove means to savor the moment. Even feels like she has time. No doubt, Kato is somewhere nearby, guarding her, waiting for Thresh and possibly Peta. Where's your boyfriend, District 12? Still hanging on? She asked. Well, as long as we're talking, I'm alive. He is out there now, hunting Kato, I snarl. Then I scream at the top of my lungs, PETA! <laughs> Clove jams her hand, her fist into my windpipe, very effectively cutting off my voice, but her head's whipping around side to side, and I know for a moment she's at least considering I'm telling the truth. Since no PETA appeared to save me, she turns back to me. Liar, she said with a grin. He's nearly dead. Kato knows where he cut him. He probably got him strapped up in some tree while you try to keep his heart going. What's that little backpack? That medicine for lover boy? He bet he'll never get it. Clove opens her jacket. She's lined with a pressive ray of knives. She carefully selects an almost dainty looking number as a cruel carved blade. I promised Kato if, if he Ooh, I promised Kato I'd let he if the what? I promised Kato if he let me have you, I'd give the audience a good show. 
I'm struggling with the effort to unseat her, but it's no use. She's too heavy, and her lock on me is too tight. Forget it, District 12. We're going to kill you. It's just like we did your pathetic little ally. What was your name again? The one who hopped around the trees? Rue? Well, first Rue, then you, and I think we'll just let nature take care of Loverboy. How does that sound? Clove asked. Now, where to start? She carelessly wipes around the blood my wound and her jacket sleeves. For a moment, she stares at my face, tilting it from side to side of a block of wood, and she's deciding exactly what pattern to carve onto it. I attempt to bite her hand, but she grabs the hair on the top of my head, forcing me back to the ground. I think... She almost purrs. I think we'll start with your mouth. I clamp my teeth together as she teasingly traces the outline of my lips with the tip of her blade. I won't close my eyes. The comment about Rue has me filled with fury. Enough fury, I just think to die with some dignity. In my last act of defiance, I will stare her down as long as I can see, which probably will not be extended period of time. But I will stare her down. I will not cry out. I will die in my own small, undefeated way. Yes, I don't think you'll have much use for your lips anymore. Want to blow every boy one more last kiss, she asks. I work up a mouthful of blood and saliva and spit it right out of her face. She flushes with rage. All right, let's get started. I raise myself for the agony that's sure to fall, but I feel, but as I feel a tip open the first cut on my lip, some great force yanks Chloe from my body, and then she's screaming. I'm too stunned at first, too unable to process what had happened. Has Peter somehow come to my rescue? Have the gamekeepers sent in some wild animals to add to the fun? Has Hovercraft inexplicably plucked her from the air? But when I see, when I put myself to my, ooh, what is going on? <laughs> when I put myself up, on my numb arms, I'm, I see it's none of the above. Clove is dangling a foot off the ground, imprisoned in Thresh's arms. Let out a gasp, seeing him like that, towering over me, holding Clove like a rag doll. Remember him as big, but he seems even more massive, more powerful than I ever recall. If anything, um, he seems to have gained weight in the arena. He slips Clove around and flings her onto the ground. When he shouts, I jump. I never have, never have heard him speak in a mutter. Whoa! When he shouts, I jump, never have having heard him speak above a mutter. What do you do with the little girl? You kill her? Chloe was scrambling backwards on all fours like a frantic insect, too shocked to even call it for Kato. No, no, it wasn't me. You said her name. I heard you. You kill and you kill her? Another thought brings a fresh wave of rage to his feature. You cut her up like you're going to cut up this girl right here? No, no, why? Clover sees a stone above the sides of a small loaf, uh, and thrusts his hand and loses it. Kato! She screams, Kato! Clove! I hear Kato answer. It's too far away. I can tell that much to do her any good. What were you doing? Trying to get Flawface to Peta? Had he been lying in, in wait for Thresh and just badly misjudged his location? Thresh brings down the rock hard against Clove's temple. Not bleeding, but I can see the dent in her skull. Dang. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> Let's keep going. Dent in her skull, and I know that she's a goner. There's still life in her now, though, and the rapid rise and fall of her chest and a low moan escaping her lips. When Thresh whirls around on me, the rock raised, I know it's not a good, it's no good to run. My bow was empty in the last, uh, loaded arrow having gone to closed direction. I'm trapped with the glare of his strange golden brow. What did he mean about rubbing your ally? I, I, we teamed up, blew up the supplies. I tried to save her, I did, but he got there first. District 1, I say, maybe if I, he knows I helped Rue, he, uh, he won't choose the most slow, sadistic end for me. And you killed him, he demands? Yes, I killed him. And buried her in flowers, I say. And I sang her to sleep. Tears spring to my eye. The tension, the fight goes the fight goes out of me in the memory. And I'm overwhelmed by Rue. And the pain in my head. And the fear of Thresh. The moaning of the dying girl a few feet away. To sleep, Thresh says gruffly. To death, I sang until she died, I say. Your district, they sent me bread. My hand reaches up, but not for the arrow that I... But I know I'll never reach. Just whip around my nose. Do it fast, okay, Thresh? 
Conflicting emotions cross Thresh's face. He lowers the rocks and points at me, almost accusingly. Just this one time, I let you go. But little girl, you and me were even there. No more owed. You understand? I nod because I do about Owen, and I hate it. I understand that if Thresh wins, I'll have to go back and face a district that has already been broken. All the rules thanks to me. And he's breaking the rules thanks to me. And I understand that for the moment, Thresh is not going to smash on my skull. My skull. Clove, Kato's voice is much nearer now. I can tell by the pain that he sees her on the ground. You better run now, fighter girl, says Thresh. I don't need to be told twice. I flip over on my feet and dig into the hard-packed earth and as I run away from Thresh and Clove and the sound of Kato's voice. Only when I reach the woods do I turn back for an instant. Thresh and both large backpacks are vanishing over the edge of the plane into the arena I've never seen. Kato kneels beside Clove, spear in hand, begging her to stay with him. The moment he will realize it's futile, she can't be saved. I crash into the woods. The tree is repeatedly swinging away the blood that's pouring into my eyes, feeling like the wild, wounded creature I am. After a few minutes, I hear the cannons and I know that Clove has died, that Kato will be on me of on one of our trails, either Thresh or Mines. I'm seized with terror, weak from uh, my head wound, shaking. I load an arrow, but Kato can throw that spear almost as far as I can shoot. Only one thing calms me down. Thresh has Kato's backpack containing the thing he needs desperately. If I had to bet, Kato headed out after Thresh, not me. Still, I don't slow down when I reach the water. I lunge into a boot to and flounder downstream. I pull off Ruth's socks that I've been using for gloves and press them into my forehead, trying to, to staunch... Staunch? Staunch? <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce this word. It's like S-T-A-U-N-C-H. Like staunch. Staunch? We're going to go with staunch. Probably to like absorb and like dab up, you know? Anyway, staunch the flow of blood, but they're soaked in minutes. Somehow I make it back to the cave and I squeeze through the rocks. In the dappled light, I pull the little orange backpack from my arm, cut open the clasp, and dump it the, the containers on the ground. One slim box containing one hypodermic needle. Without hesitating, I jam the needle into Peter's arm, slowly press down the plunger. My hands go to my head, then drop to my lap, sticky with blood. Last thing I remember is the exquisitely beautiful silvery green moth landing on the curve of my wrist. Okay, we are now on chapter 22, means after this we'll have five chapters left. We've gotten through three chapters so far, which is pretty good. So I think the next one might be like an hour and a half season finale, series finale even. Wow, going crazy here. Okay, and we are just reaching the 100 page mark. Whoop, let's keep going. The sound of rain drumming on the roof of our house gently pulled me towards consciousness. I fight to return to sleep through wrapped in a cocoon of blankets, safe at home. I'm vaguely aware that my head aches, possibly have the flu, and this is why I'm allowed to stay in bed, even though I can tell I can tell I've been asleep a long time. My mother's hand strokes my cheek, and I don't push it away as I would in a wakefulness, never wanting her to know how much I crave the gentle touch, how much I miss her even though I don't trust her. Then there's a voice that's the wrong voice, not my mother's, and I'm scared. Katniss, it says, Katniss, can you hear me? My eyes open and the sense of security vanishes. I'm not at home, not with my mother and, the, and my mother. I'm in a dim, chilly cave, my bare feet freezing despite the cover, the air tainted with the unmistakable smell of blood. The haggard, pale face of a boy slides into view, and after an initial dose of alarm, I feel better. Peta! Hey, he says. Good to see your eyes again. How long were I out? Not sure. Woke up yesterday evening, and then you were lying next to me in a, in a very scary pool of blood, he says. I think it stopped finally, but I, I wouldn't sit up or anything. I gently lift my hand to my head and feel a bandage. The simple gesture leaves me weak and dizzy. Dizzy. Peta holds a bottle to my lips and I drink thirstily. You're better, I say. Much better. Whatever you shot into my arm through the trick, he says. By morning, almost all the swelling in my leg was gone. 
He doesn't seem angry at my tricking him, drugging him, and running off to the feast. Maybe I'm just too beat up, and I'll hear about it later when I'm stronger. But for a moment, he's all gentleness. Did I eat? Did you eat? I ask. Sorry to say I gobbled down three pieces of that gruesome before. I realized it. It might be a last. It might have to last for a while. Don't worry, I'm back on a strict diet. He says, "No, it's good. You need to eat. I'll go hunting soon." I say, "Not too soon, all right. You just let me take care of you for a while." I don't really need to. I don't really seem to have much choice. Peter feeds me a bite of gruesling and raisins and makes me drink plenty of water. He rubs some warmth back into my feet and wraps them in his jacket before tucking the sleeping bag back and around my chin. Your boots and socks are still damp, and the weather's not helping much, he says. There's a clap of thunder, and I see light electrifying the sky through an opening in the rocks. Rain drips, th rain drips through several holes in the ceiling, but Peta has built a sort of canopy over my head and upper body by wedging the square of plastic into the rocks above me. I wonder what brought on the storm, I think. Who's the target, says Peta. Cattail and thrush, I say that thinking. Flockface will be in a den somewhere, and Clove, she cut me, and then... My voice chills off. I know. Clove's dead. I saw him in the sky last night. Did you kill her? No. Thresh broke her skull with a rock, I say. Luckily, he didn't catch you, too, says Peter. Memory of the feast returns full force, and I feel sick. He did, but he let me go. Then, of course, I have to tell him about things I've kept myself because he was too sick to ask, and I wasn't ready to relive anything. Like the explosion in my ear and Ruth's dying and the boy from District 1 and the bread, all of which leads to what happened with Thresh and how he was paying a debt of sorts. He let you go because he didn't want to owe you anything, says Peter in disbelief. Yes, I don't expect you to understand it. You've always had enough, but if you had lived in the seam, I wouldn't have to explain it. I say, I don't try. Obviously, I'm too dim to get it, he says. Like the bread, how would I ever seem, how I never seem to get over owing that to you? I say, the bread, what? From when we were kids, he says. I think we can let that go. I mean, you just brought me back from the dead. But you didn't know me. You'd, we'd never spoken before. Besides, it's the first gift that always that's always the hardest to pay back. I wouldn't even have been here to do it if you hadn't helped me then, I say. What did you... Why did you, anyway? Why? You know why, Peter says. I give my head a slight painful shake. Hey, Mitch said you would take a lot of convincing. Hey, Mitch, I ask, what's he got to do with this? Nothing, Peter says. So, Cato and Thresh, huh? I hope... I guess it's too much to hope that they'll simultaneously destroy themselves. But the thought only upsets me. I think we would like Thresh. I th I think he'd be our friend back in District 12, I say. Well, let's hope Kato kills him so we don't have to, says Peter grimly. I don't want Kato to kill Thresh at all. I don't want anyone else to die, but this is absolutely not the type of thing the thing that victors go around saying in the arena. Despite my best efforts, I can feel the tears starting to pull in my eyes. Peter looks at me concerned. What is it? Are you in a lot of pain? Give another answer because it's equally true but can be taken for a brief moment of weakness instead of a terminal one. I want to go home, Peter. I say plaintively like a small child. You will. I promise, he says, and he bends over and gives me a kiss. I want to go home now, I say. I tell you what, you can go back to sleep and dream of home, and you'll be there for real before you know it, he says. Okay? Okay, I whisper. Wake me up if you need me to keep watch. I'm good and rested thanks to you. And hey, Mitch. Besides, who knows how long this will last. What does he mean? The storm? The brief repest? Rep respite? The brief respite, um, where are we? The brief respite it brings us, the games themselves. I don't know if I'm too sad and tired, and I'm too tired to ask. It's evening when Peter wakes me again. The rain has turned to a downpour, sending a stream of water through our ceilings, where earlier had been only drips. Peter had placed the broth pot under the worst one, and I repositioned the plastic to affect most of it on me, or from me. I feel a bit better 
able to sit up without getting too dizzy, and I'm absolutely famished. So is Peta. Clearly, he's been waiting for me to wake up to eat and is eager to get started. There's not much. Two, piece of, two pieces of grisling left and a small mishmash of roots and a handful of dried fruits. Should we try and ration it? Peta asked. No, let's just finish it. The grisling is getting old anyway. The last thing we need is to get sick off spoiled food, I say, dividing the food into two equal piles. We try and eat slowly, but we're both so hungry we're done in a couple of minutes. My stomach is in no way satisfied. Tomorrow is a hunting day, I say. Won't be much help with that, Peter says. I've never hunted before. I kill you, cook, I say, and you are and you can always gather. I wish there was some sort of bread bush out there, says Peter. The bread they sent me from District 11 was still warm, I say with a sigh. Here, chew these. I had a piece of mint leaves and pop a few in my mouth as well. It's hard to even see the projection in the sky, but it's clear enough to know that there were no more deaths today, so Kato and Thresh haven't had it out yet. Where did Thresh go? I mean, there's uh, there's the far side of the circle, I asked Peter. A field, as far as you can see, is full of grass as high as my shoulders. I don't know, maybe some of them are grain. They are packed with different colors, but there are no paths, says Peter. I bet some of them are grain. I bet Thresh knows which one is which. Uh... I say, did you go there? No. Nobody really wants to track thrush through that grass. It has a sinister feel to it. Every time I look at that field, all I can think about are hidden things. Snakes and rabbit animals and quicksand, says Peter. There could be anything in there. I don't say so, but Peter's words remind me of the warning they give about not going beyond the fence in District 12. I can't help but a uh, moment comparing him with Gale, who would see that field as a potential source of food as well as a threat. Thresh clearly did, and it's not that Peter's soft exactly, and he's provided he's not a coward, but there are things you don't question too much. I guess when you're home, always smells like baking bread, whereas Gail's questions everything. What would Peter think of the irrevent banter that passes between us as we break the law each day? Would it shock him, the thing we say about Padam? Gail's tirades against the Capitol? Maybe there is a bread bush that in that field, I say. Maybe that's why Thresh looks better fed now than when he started the games. Either that or he's got a very generous sponsor, says PETA. I wonder what we'd have to do to get Hamish to send us some bread. I raise my eyebrows before I remember he doesn't know about the message Hamish sent us a couple of nights ago. One guess equals one pot of broth. It's not the sort of thing I can blurt out, either. To say my thoughts aloud would be tipping off the audience that the romance has been fabricated to play on their sympathies, and that would result in no food at all. Somehow, believably, I got all the things. I've got to get things back on track. Something simple to start with. I reach out and take his hand. Well, he probably used up a lot of resources helping me knock you out, I say mischievously. Yeah, about that, says Peter, entwining with his fingers in mine. Don't try something like that again. Or what, I ask. Or, or, can't think of anything good. Just give me a minute. What's the problem, I say with a grin? The problem is we're both still alive. Which only reinforces the idea in your mind that you did the right thing, says Peter. I did the right thing, I say. No, you don't. Just don't, Katniss. His grip tightens, hurting my hand. There's a real anger in his voice. Don't die for me. You won't be doing me any favors, all right? I'm startled by his intensity, but recognize an excellent opportunity for getting food, so I try to keep up. Maybe I did it for myself, Peter. You ever think of that? Maybe you aren't the only one who, who worries about what would it be like if I fumble. I'm not as smooth with words as Peter. and while I was talking, the idea of actually losing Peter hit me again, and I realized just how much I don't want him to die. And it's not about the sponsors, and it's not about what will happen back home. Not just that I don't want to be alone. It's him. I don't lose the boy with the bread. That's what I'm saying. She's saying he's rich. She's saying he got the moolah. I'm joking. He's he's a baker. She just wants <laughs> she just wants the bread he makes at his house. That's the actual bread that she's talking about. That was the true meaning of the bread or the friendship, I guess. <laughs>
If what, Katniss, he says softly. I wish I could pull a shutter closed, blocking out this moment from the prying eyes of Panam. Even if that means losing food, whatever I'm feeling is not, there's no one's business but mine. That's exactly the kind of topic Hamish told me to steer clear of, I say evasively, although Hamish never said anything of the kind. In fact, he's probably cursing me out right now for dropping the ball during such an emotional charge um, moment. Petus somehow catches it. Then I'll just have to fill the blanks myself, he says and moves in on me. This is the first kiss that we're both fully aware of. Neither was hobbled by sickness or pain or simply unconscious. Our lips neither burning with fever nor icy cold. This is the first kiss where I actually feel stirring inside my chest. Warm and curious, just the first kiss if you want another. But I don't get it. Well, I do get a second kiss, but it's just a light one on the tip of my nose because Peter's been distracted. I think your wound is bleeding again. Come on, lie down. It's bedtime anyway, he says. My socks are dry enough to wear now, and I make Peter put his jacket back on. The damp cold seems to cut right down to my bone, so you must be half frozen. I insist on taking the first watch, too, though neither of us thinks it's likely anyone will come this weather. But he won't agree unless I'm in the bag, too, and I'm shivering so hard that it's pointless to object. In stark contrast to two nights ago when I felt Peter was miles away, I'm struck by his um, intimacy now. As we settle in, he pulls my head uh, down to his arm. Oh, down, using his arm as a pillow. The rest... Uh, the others rest protectively over me even when he goes to sleep. No one has held me like this in a long time. Since my father died and I stopped trusting my mother, no one else's arms made me feel this safe. With the aid of the glasses, I lie watching the drips of water splatter on the cave floor. Rhythmic and lulling, several times I drift off briefly, then snap away guiltily and angry with myself. After three or four hours, I can't help. I have to rouse Peter because I can't keep my eyes open. He doesn't seem to mind. Tomorrow when it's dry, let's find us a better place so high in the trees we can both sleep in peace, I promise as I drift off. But tomorrow's no better in terms of weather. The delug continues as if the game makers are intent on washing us all away. The thunder is so powerful it seems to shake the ground. Pete is considering heading out out anyway to scavenge for food, but I tell him in the storm it would be pointless. He won't be able to see three feet in front of his face, and he'll only end up getting soaked to the skin for his troubles. He knows I'm right, but the gnawing in our stomachs has become painful. The day drags on into turning to even, and there's no break in the weather. Hamish is our only hope, but nothing is forthcoming. Either from lack of money, everything will cost an exorbitant amount, or because he's dissatisfied with their performance. Probably the latter. I'd be the first to admit we're not exactly riveting today. Starving, uh, weak from injuries, trying not to reopen wounds, we're sitting huddled together wrapped in the sleeping bag. Yes, but mostly just to keep warm. The most exciting thing either of us does is nap. I'm not really sure how to ramp up the romance. I guess last night was nice, but working up another will take some forth for some forethought. There are girls in the steam of the merchant There are girls in the steam, some of the merchant girls who navigate these waters easily, but I never had much time or use for it. Anyway, just a kiss isn't enough anymore, clearly because if it was, we'd have gotten food last night. My instinct tell me Hamish isn't looking for physical affection. He wants something more personal, the sort of stuff he was trying to get me to tell about myself when we were practicing for the interview. I'm rotten at it, but Pete is not. Maybe the best approach is to get him talking. Pete, I say lightly, you said at the interview that you had a crush on me forever. When did forever start? Oh, let me see. I guess the first day of school, we were five. You had on a red plaid dress and your hair. It was put in two braids instead of one. My father pointed you out when we were waiting in line, Peter says. Your father? Why? He asked. He says, see that girl? I wanted to marry her mother, but she ran off with a coal miner, Peter says. What? You're making that up, I exclaimed. No, true story, Peter says. And I said, a coal miner? Why did she want a coal miner if she could have had you? And he says, because when he sings, even the birds stop to listen. That's true. They do. I mean, they did.
I say. I'm stunned and surprisingly moved to think of the baker telling this to Peter. It strikes me that my own reluctance to sing, my own dismissal of music, might not really be, be that that I think is a waste of time. Maybe because it reminds me too much of my father. So that day in music assembly, the teacher asked who knew the valley song. Her hand shot up in the air. She said up, he told you to, st- ooh, she stood you up on a stool, had you sing it for us. And I swear, every bird outside the windows fell silent, Peter says. Oh, please, I say laughing. No, what happened? And right when your song ended, I knew, just like your mother, I was a goner, Peter says. Then for the next 11 years, I tried to work up the nerve to talk to you. Without success, I add, without success. So in a way, my name, being drawn in the reaping, was a real piece of luck, says Peter. For a moment, I'm almost foolishly happy, and then confusion sweeps over me, because we're supposed to be making up this stuff, playing at being in love, and not actually being in love. But Peter's story has a ring of truth to it. That part about my father and the birds, I did see on the first day of school, though. I don't remember the song and the red plaid dress. There was one, a hand-me-down to Prim, that got washed to rags after my father's death. It would explain another thing, too, why Peter took a beating to give me the bread on an awful holiday. So if the details are true, could it be true? You have a remarkable memory, I say haltingly. I remember everything about you, says Peter, tucking a loose strand of hair behind my ear. You're the one who wasn't paying attention. I am now. Well, I don't have much competition here, he says. I want to draw away to close those shutters again, but I know I can't. As if I can say, here, Mitch, I can visit food. <laughs> As if I can hear Hamish whispering in my ear, say it, say it. So all hard to get the words out. You don't have much competition anywhere. And this time, it's me who lends in. T, get it, Katniss. Go, girly. Our lips have just barely touched when the clunk outside makes me jump. My bow comes up and the air ready to fly up, but there's no sound. Peter peers through the rocks, then gives us a whoop. Before I can stop him, he's out in the rain and handling something to me. Silver parachute attached to a basket. I rip it open. And inside her feast, fresh rolls, a goat cheese, a goat cheese, apples, and best of all, a terrine of that incredible lamb stew. Oh my gosh, what is up with her in the stew? I'm telling you, this is all this girl ever thinks about. She's like, I need this foot lamb stew. I know it is lamb stew. Like, literally, oh my goodness, Katniss. I don't think that stew's so good. I never said, like, previously, maybe I'd eat that stew. But now, the way she's hyping this up, I feel, I know, I know to my heart, that stew is not good. It's not a good stew. And she's eating it like it's something, and it's not going to be something. And I'm so hot because, you know, it's like when you think something looks good, but then it's not good. And you're like, oh, my goodness, I wasted my time trying to get. Yeah, it's like when you're waiting in line for food that you heard was supposed to be good, and it tastes awful that's like the worst thing because it's like you waited for that too like her this homegirl she waited for this and she's like yeah this thing is the best it's what i want but it's not what she wants because literally i'm telling you right now katniss you're just hyped up on that too because you all you've eaten before was like berries and wild game and all that stuff and you just mix it all together and it's not good and it's not fun and it's not good and it's not fun Okay, maybe I'm being dramatic, but I am sick and tired of her talking about this stew. She says this every time. I feel like every time she's talking about the stew. Oh, okay, okay, we're almost done the chapter, so we'll just finish it, I guess. So, oh, I'm just so annoyed because it's like this girl and her stew. Like, literally, it's not going to stop. And I, I, just, oh, I know I should like, throw something else, but I'm just like, no. I'm no, no. Okay, I think I'm talking about this stew too much, but it's just bothering me. Okay, I'm done. I'm done. All right? I'm done. Okay, we're going to continue. 
The very dish I told Caesar uh, Flickerman was the most impressive thing the Capitol had to offer. Peter wriggles back his head, his face lit up like the sun. I guess Hamish finally got tired of us wa- watching us starve. I guess so, I answered. But in my head, I can hear Hamish smug, a slightly exasperated words. Yes, that's what I'm looking for, sweetheart. Okay. So we just finished chapter 22. We're on chapter 23, which means we have four chapters left. Uh oh. We're almost done the Hunger Games. So. This was supposed to be released on Sunday, but I was lazy. I was lazy, so it was released on Monday. Today's Monday, so it's going to be released today. Um, but yeah, uh, I'm very excited. I'll do one more, I guess, later today. I think I've released all of the podcasts today. <laughs> They're going to have to listen to a lot because we had the first, no, the first one I released, which was called, oh my goodness, I literally just put it, oh, um, strawberry smoothie. That was the first one, I think. No, no, no. Sorry, sorry. Reverse, reverse, reverse. First one was the forty seventh Hunger Games begin. Like, let the forty seventh Hunger Games begin. The next one was strawberry smoothie. This one will be called part one series finale, something like that, or not the stew, something like that. I don't know. Um, and the last one will be like, oh, we out of this, or we're done. And yes, well, as I've been saying and I've been stressing, I'll be doing a question and a Q&A, a question and answering um, episode at the end. I'll leave my email at the bottom of the description and I think my email should be out for you to give me questions and anything you want me to answer. I will try my very best answer um, if I can, you know. We're going to see what happens. But yes, I plan to finish The Hunger Games this week. And then the plan is to watch the movie maybe this weekend. And we're either going to do a play-by-play a reaction to the movie as I'm watching it. Or kind of a summary of what I saw, what was different, what I liked, what I didn't like at the end. So, again, give me your comments, questions, and concerns um, about what you want for the finale and what you want for the movie watching in the email that I will be giving below. But as always, thank you for listening, and we'll see you again next time for the latest episode of the podcast. So we'll see you later. Bye! Okay, and done. And that's it. We got pretty far for today, so I can't wait for the next one. And if I said something wrong, which let's be honest, I probably did... Don't hesitate to point it out to me, because honestly, if you can't laugh at yourself, who are you actually supposed to laugh at? Am I right? <laughs> okay, then I'll see you in the next one. Midday, out.